If you didn't look at the calendar yet this morning, take notes. Today is August 7th. And you know what that means. It's time to have your Christmas wish list done. You only, after all, have 130 days until Christmas. So don't wait until the last minute to get started on such a list. But maybe before you put together your Christmas list this year, give some thought to your wish lists in the past. How many of your Christmas wish lists throughout your life have had a 100% success rate where you got everything that you asked for on your list? Now maybe some of you occasionally, maybe some of you, if, if your Christmas list and your approach to asking for things for Christmas uh, imitated or reflected that of my dad throughout all of my childhood. You keep it simple and ask for nothing more than socks and oil change coupons. You're much more likely to get 100% of your requests every Christmas. But most of us dig a little deeper and think of a few more things than just two items to ask for. Prayer is not like your Christmas wish list. Now, that isn't to say that you are going to get everything that you ask for 100% of the time, but here's the difference. 100% of the time, every prayer that you offer up will be answered. It has a 100% success rate. Every time you pray, God listens, He hears, He responds to your prayer. And he is always going to answer, and I suppose maybe the simplest way that we could, could distinguish the ways that God answers is to put his response into two categories. He's either going to give you what you ask for, or he's going to give you something better. That's how God operates. So this morning, as we reflect on Abraham's prayer request from God, we want to consider how God answered Abraham's prayer. And we want to take this account and apply it to ourselves personally so that we would walk out of here with not just the desire, but actually the, the ability to be more focused in our prayer lives. The section just before the verses that you heard from Genesis are, are kind of helpful a little bit to know what we were getting into. Abraham had just gotten done throwing quite the elaborate guest party. Unexpected, he had three visitors that came to him and he pulled out all the stops to entertain them. Now, initially, they were strangers, but as God made it clear, they were much more than that. One of those three individuals was the Lord God himself, and the other two were angels accompanying him. So Abraham had entertained them, and now they were on their way. And two of those visitors, the angels, went on their way, and the Lord God remained, and he made it clear to Abraham what was going to happen next. He was going to go from that place, and he was going to visit Sodom and Gomorrah to see if things in Sodom and Gomorrah were actually as bad as the reports that he had been receiving. The Lord wanted to see firsthand. Now, you wouldn't be, there wouldn't be anything wrong with you if, if you are asking yourself right now, why would the Lord need to actually visit the city to confirm its wickedness? 
to see if all of the cries and the laments of Sodom and Gomorrah's wickedness that had become characteristic and and very widespread, their reputation preceded them, people knew that this was a wicked part of the world. Why did the Lord need to go and visit it and see for himself if he, in fact, is omniscient? Maybe the way that we answer that question is by asking another one. Why did the Lord even need to reveal to Abraham that that was what he was going to do? He didn't need to lay out his plans or his itinerary to Abraham because he was soliciting or looking for advice. He didn't need Abraham's thoughts on the matter and to say, what's your opinion? What do you think I should do? How should I handle this? What do you say, Abraham? He didn't need that from him, so why would he communicates to, to Abraham what he was doing and then stand there briefly for, for just a moment as the other two guests went on their way. It helps to understand that there's really two things going on. There's one, how God is going to engage with and how he's going to handle the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's the second one, which is the matter of Abraham, which was not just any old individual, but a very special individual to God. The one who, by his grace, the Lord had chosen to be the family line through whom the Savior would come. His covenant of Jesus being sent into the world was set up and established through Abraham. And just before the verses from our text from our first reading this morning, this is how the Lord God described Abraham. And it helps us to know where the Lord is coming from. In verse 17, Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, because Jesus would come from him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. No, the Lord did not need anything from Abraham, but in his grace, in his mercy, he presented this opportunity for Abraham to grow into what God wanted him to be. As he described him, someone who does what is right and just. And so here was an opportunity. The Lord left the door wide open for Abraham to intervene on the part of Sodom and Gomorrah. And through his prayer, Abraham demonstrated the exact kind of heart that the Lord looks for in his people. A heart that first and foremost is driven by patience, mercy, compassion for others. And that's reflected very clearly in the prayer that Abraham offered up. In fact, as we reflect on this prayer, You might notice, if if you are familiar with Scripture, you might know a little bit of the background, that there's more to just this matter than meets the eye. Abraham was concerned about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but not just the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham had family residing there. His nephew Lot and his wife and his two daughters, their sons-in-law, although we don't know that Abraham knew how many family members were there, he knew that Lot had resided there when they previously had parted ways. That was the land that Lot chose. So undoubtedly, Abraham was praying for his family's deliverance. But you also note that he didn't just ask the Lord, deliver my family before you wipe out the cities. 
But he asked that the Lord would spare the cities as well. In verses 23 and 24, Abraham approached him, the Lord, and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? So yes, Abraham was certainly concerned about his family, but not only about his family. He saw this as an opportunity for the Lord to extend his mercy and his grace to certainly people that he knew full well didn't deserve it. Do you think that kind of a request would stand out in our cancel culture today? That somebody would demonstrate that kind of patience and compassion for Again, uh, a part of the world that had a reputation distinctly for being extremely wicked and evil. And instead ask for mercy and compassion. And not just would that stand out in the world, but even, let's go a step further, would that kind of request stand out amongst God's people within the church today? Is that same kind of mercy and compassion the first thing that we think of when we face or deal with that kind of evil and wickedness in our world? Or would we have to confess that more often than not, or at least more than we'd care to admit, our attitude toward such wickedness, we are much more like Jonah than Abraham. That if the Lord would communicate to us his plans, his intentions to wipe out some wicked, corrupt, godless city today, Wouldn't we be inclined to say, don't let me get in your way, Lord. You go ahead and take care of business. Give them what they deserve. My life is certainly going to be much easier without that kind of evil and wickedness in the world. And doesn't this already say quite a bit about our own personal prayer lives? To confess that that attitude is oftentimes what is reflected in in our hearts. When is the last time that your prayers were, were not for, for violence or justice against those who are wicked and evil, but instead that the Lord would demonstrate patience and mercy and compassion to those who are lost in their sin and their wickedness. When is the last time that, that you have prayed for the conversion of an unbeliever by name, especially not just any unbeliever, but the one that that ribs you, that is in your face, that is totally anti-everything Christian? When is the last time that that your prayers were not so much about you and bent inward and, and focused on self, but instead were directed on the needs of others? And as we answer all of these these questions, and many like them, we all come to the same conclusion that we have plenty of room to grow in our prayer lives. And not only to recognize that, but also to go a a step further and to acknowledge that God in His justice actually has no reason that He should ever bend His ear to any of our requests for so much as another second for the rest of eternity. And yet... The Lord is merciful. God extends His grace to us. He does not condemn us or turn His ear away from us because of our pitiful prayer life. Because instead, He sees the perfect record of our Savior's prayers. Because instead, He sees the perfect sacrifice 
of Jesus that paid for all of our, not only our flawed prayers, but our silent prayers, the ones that we never even offered up in the first place. To say nothing of the selfish ones. All of them are covered. All of them are paid for. And for that reason, we know that we have, on a continuing basis, that connection with God through prayer. A connection that will never be broken. You know what it's like to have a bad connection. You've been in a conversation with somebody either on your end or their end that wasn't getting a good signal. And about every other word cuts out. And it drives you bonkers. You see if it's you or if it's them and they try to to go to a, a place where they get a little bit better reception or you do the same and nothing changes and eventually your patience wears thin and you give up. You say, let's just hang up. We'll talk later because I can't understand anything that you're saying. And that will never be the case in your conversation with God in prayer. That communication, that line of communication will always be open. And not only that, but God promises you that that when you fumble through prayers, when your prayers are misguided, when you're not even sure what to pray for, he promises you on top of grace and forgiveness that the Holy Spirit is going to take what comes out of your mouth and my mouth and make it good and God-pleasing. It's going to be pleasant by the time it reaches his ears. Think of that. Your status before God, the status of your ability to pray, is not dependent on God first saying, show me that you have it all put together in your prayer life and that you deserve this privilege and this right. But rather that God in his grace continues to extend to us the invitation, talk to me anytime. My ears are always open and I'm eager to answer your prayers. It's not... It's not your perfect prayer, but his perfect sacrifice that makes that true. It isn't your ideal supplication, but his sacrifice that promises we have direct access to God when and as often as we need it. So then how does that shape our prayer lives, the desire to actually grow, to be a better prayer in the future than we have been in the past, to to access this, to walk the way that that Abraham did, to embody his prayers. And if we look at Abraham's prayer, maybe there are four characteristics that we could take away, and I suppose we can even use the word pray to break down what those letters are. First of all, you note Abraham's persistence. He didn't just make one request of the Lord and say, hey, for the sake of this many righteous people, will you, will you spare them? And then on to the next thing and on with his life. But he persistently, he boldly continued to approach the Lord and even lower the stakes a little bit or raise them depending on how you look at it. So often, instead of persistence, our prayer lives are more like the Hail Mary at the end of the football game. A last-ditch effort. We chuck it up and guess what? Here's the thing about a Hail Mary. Sometimes it works. But your chances are much better of the ball being caught the more passes you throw. So in prayer, the more persistent we are, the more prayers we offer, the more opportunities we give God to answer those prayers with a persistence and a boldness. He's not going to answer the prayers that are never offered up. And as James says, you don't have because you don't ask. So be persistent in prayer, not the one and done Hail Mary that says, well, I threw it up there, we'll see what sticks, and then on to the next thing. 
but some have said that, uh, use the acronym or the acrostic push, pray until something happens. Until you see, until you notice a response from God, keep praying for that thing. Be persistent. Now, persistence is not to be confused with arrogance. We are going to be persistent, but we're also going to be repentant in our prayers, acknowledging humbly that the privilege that we have to approach the Lord in prayer is because of who he is, not because of who we are. Abraham demonstrated that, didn't he? When he confessed before the Lord as he continued lowering that status of, of expectation that he was full of dust and ashes. A picture of repentance. He knew he had no business, no right approaching God because of who he was, but he also knew who the Lord was. And so as much as we want to embody that bold persistence, it would seem to be a paradox, but it isn't. It's that humble repentance that allows us to approach God with a bold persistence. So we're persistent, we're repentant. And then when it comes to asking in prayer, now that might seem like kind of a, a no-brainer because asking is what we naturally do in prayer. But give thought to exactly what your ask is of God. He invites us to ask anything, but so often our requests before him have kind of a, a tunnel vision. We think of, of one thing and only one way that the Lord could answer the prayer instead of all the ways that God could bring blessing out of any given situation. For example, sickness or illness. When you tell somebody that you are praying for them who is, who is sick, who is ill, nine times out of ten, don't we mean we're praying that you will get healthy? Think bigger than that. Yeah, God absolutely has demonstrated he can heal, but he can do a whole lot more than just heal an individual. What else could you ask God for in that situation? You could ask him, Lord, I, I pray that you are glorified through this, that others see this situation and, and they are intent on focusing on you as a result of it. Lord, I would ask that the person who is sick, that you would give them your strength, that you would allow them to persevere. Lord, I ask that the person who's sick would let their light shine so that maybe through how they handle this sickness, you use that to bring others into your kingdom. Lord, use this sickness to change me to help me be more understanding or accepting of somebody else's situation. See how much more there is that God can do when we give thought to exactly what we're asking of him? Too often it's, it's kind of like when we're driving and, and there's traffic and you are only focused on the one car in front of you that is slowing you down. And if you can just get around that car, maybe things will get a little bit better. But if you could see the big picture of that, you realize there's all kinds of factors that are contributing to that. Maybe there's an accident. Maybe it's rush hour. Who knows what else is going on? God does. We focus on this one thing and ask for it. Meanwhile, God's saying, you are so small-minded. There is so much more that I could do through this. Just ask. And then we yield, finally, to, to his will and his response. We can be bold. We can be persistent. We can ask, he says, whatever we want to in his name, and he'll grant it. But at the end of the day, we yield with the confidence that the Lord, who probably has just a little bit more insider information on the situation than we do, is going to be able to answer any prayer in a way that far surpasses what we could not only ask for but even imagine. And so we yield to his will. We are okay when he doesn't answer the prayer in the way that I ask because I'm confident that he answered it 
in a way that is even better. Did the Lord answer Abraham's prayer? How would you respond? Could you say yes? Could you say no? You could say both. On the one hand, he couldn't answer Abraham's prayer. Abraham left it at ten, and sadly, the Lord didn't even find ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, the Lord, who desires to save, who yearns to rescue and deliver, still rescued Abraham's family. And so justice was carried out for Sodom and Gomorrah, which also sends a very powerful message, one that has been relayed to every generation since then, that God is very serious about sin, but he's also very serious about deliverance, just as he was with Lot and his family. God answers our prayers. So we pray with the same confidence that, that Abraham did. I, I hope you didn't start to get anxious when I mentioned that it's already August 7th and Christmas is only 130 days. And my encouragement would be to you, rather than focusing on your Christmas list, worrying about that, give a little more attention to something that is going to have a far greater impact, your prayer life. And seek as Abraham to pray with persistence, with a humble, repentant heart. Give just a little bit more thought to what you ask for in prayer. And then yield to how God chooses to answer with the complete confidence that he's able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. That's a focused prayer life. May God grant that to each of us. Amen.